Chapter 4, Sections 7 to 11 of The World Set Free. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. Chapter 4 Section 7 It is characteristic of the manner in which large enterprises force themselves upon the Brazago Council that it was not until the end of the first year of their administration and then only with extreme reluctance that they would take up the manifest need for a lingua franca for the world. They seem to have given little attention to the various theoretical universal languages which were proposed to them. They wished to give as little trouble to hasty and simple people as possible, and the worldwide distribution of English gave them a bias for it from the beginning. The extreme simplicity of its grammar was also in its favor. It was not without some sacrifices that the English-speaking peoples were permitted the satisfaction of hearing their speech used universally. The language was shorn of a number of grammatical peculiarities. The distinctive forms for the subjunctive mood, for example, and most of its irregular plurals were abolished. Its spelling was systemized and adapted to the vowel sounds in use upon the continent of Europe, and a process of incorporating foreign nouns and verbs commenced that speedily reached enormous proportions. Within ten years from the establishment of the World Republic, the new English dictionary had swelled to include a vocabulary of 250,000 words, and a man of 1900 would have found considerable difficulty in reading an ordinary newspaper. On the other hand, the men of the new time could still appreciate the older English literature. Certain minor acts of uniformity accompanied this larger one. The idea of a common understanding and a general simplification of intercourse once it was accepted led very naturally to the universal establishment of the metric system of weights and measures, and to the disappearance of the various makeshift calendars that had hitherto confused chronology. The year was divided into thirteen months of four weeks each, and New Year's Day and Leap Year's Day were made holidays, and did not count at all in the ordinary week. So the weeks and the months were brought into correspondence. And, moreover, as the king put it to Furman, it was decided to nail down Easter. In these matters, as in so many matters, the new civilization came as a simplification of ancient complications. The history of the calendar throughout the world is a history of inadequate adjustments, of attempts to fix seed time and midwinter that go back into the very beginning of human society, and this final rectification had a symbolic value quite beyond its practical convenience. 
but the council would have no rash nor harsh innovations no strange names for the months and no alteration in the numbering of the years the world had already been put upon one universal monetary basis for some months after the accession of the council the world's affairs had been carried on without any sound currency at all over great regions money was still in use but with the most extravagant variations in price and the most disconcerting fluctuations of public confidence the ancient rarity of gold upon which the entire system rested was gone gold was now a waste product in the release of atomic energy and it was plain that no metal could be the basis of the monetary system again henceforth all coins must be token coins yet the whole world was accustomed to metallic money and a vast proportion of existing human relationships had grown up upon a cash basis and were almost inconceivable without that convenient liquidating factor it seemed absolutely necessary to the life of the social organization to have some sort of currency and the council had therefore to discover some real value upon which to rest it various such apparently stable values as land and hours of work were considered ultimately the government which was now in possession of most of the supplies of energy releasing material fixed a certain number of units of energy as the value of a gold sovereign declared a sovereign to be worth exactly twenty marks twenty-five francs five dollars and so forth with the other current units of the world and undertook under various qualifications and conditions to deliver energy upon demand as payment for every sovereign presented on the whole this worked satisfactorily they saved the face of the pound sterling coin was rehabilitated and after a phase of price fluctuations began to settle down to definite equivalents and uses again with names and everyday values familiar to the common run of people section eight as the brazago council came to realize that what it had supposed to be temporary camps of refugees were rapidly developing into great towns of a new type and that it was remoulding the world in spite of itself it decided to place this work of redistributing the non-agricultural population in the hands of a compacter and better qualified special committee that committee is now far more than the council of any other of its delegated committees the active government of the world developed from an almost invisible germ of town planning that came obscurely into existence in europe or america the question is still in dispute somewhere in the closing decades of the nineteenth century its work the continual active planning and replanning of the world as a place of human habitation is now so to speak the collective material activity of the race the spontaneous disorderly spreadings and recessions of the population as aimless and mechanical as the trickling of spilt water 
which was the substance of history for endless years, giving rise here to congestions, here to chronic devastating wars, and everywhere to a discomfort and disorderliness that was at its best only picturesque, is at an end. Men spread now, with the whole power of the race to aid them, into every available region of the earth. Their cities are no longer tethered to running water and the proximity of cultivation. Their plans are no longer affected by strategic considerations or thoughts of social insecurity. The aeroplane and the nearly costless mobile car have abolished trade routes. A common language and a universal law have abolished a thousand restraining inconveniences. And so an astonishing dispersal of habitations has begun. One may live anywhere, and so it is that our cities now are true social gatherings, each with a character of its own and distinctive interests of its own, and most of them with a common occupation. They lie out in the former deserts, these long-wasted sun-baths of the race. They tower amidst eternal snows. They hide in remote islands and bask on broad lagoons. For a time the whole tendency of mankind was to desert the river valleys in which the race had been cradled for half a million years. But now that the war against flies has been waged so successfully that this pestilential branch of life is nearly extinct, they are returning thither with a renewed appetite for gardens laced by watercourses, for pleasant living amidst islands and houseboats and bridges, and for nocturnal lanterns reflected by the sea. Man who is ceasing to be an agricultural animal becomes more and more a builder, a traveler, and a maker. How much he ceases to be a cultivator of the soil, the returns of the redistribution committee showed. Every year the work of our scientific laboratories increases the productivity and simplifies the labor of those who work upon the soil and the food now of the whole world is produced by less than one percent of its population, a percentage which still tends to decrease. Far fewer people are needed upon the land than training and proclivity disposed towards it, and as a consequence of this excess of human attention, the garden side of life, the creation of groves and lawns and vast regions of beautiful flowers, has expanded enormously and continues to expand. For, as agricultural method intensifies and the quota is raised, one farm association after another, availing itself of the 1975 regulations, elects to produce a public garden and plaisance in the place of its former fields, and the area of freedom and beauty is increased and the chemist's triumphs of synthesis, which could now give us an entirely artificial food, remain largely in abeyance because it is so much more pleasant and interesting to eat natural produce and to grow such things upon the soil. Each year adds to the variety of our fruits and the delightfulness of our flowers. 
Section 9 The early years of the World Republic witnessed a certain recrudescence of political adventure. There was, it is rather curious to note, no revival of separatism after the face of King Ferdinand Charles had vanished from the sight of men. But in a number of countries, as the first urgent physical needs were met, there appeared a variety of personalities having this in common, that they sought to revive political trouble and clamor by its aid to positions of importance and satisfaction. In no case did they speak in the name of kings, and it is clear that monarchy must have been far gone in obsolescence before the twentieth century began. But they made appeals to the large survivals of nationalist and racial feeling that were everywhere to be found. They alleged with considerable justice that the council was overriding racial and national customs and disregarding religious rules. The great plain of India was particularly prolific in such agitators. The revival of newspapers, which had largely ceased during the terrible year because of the dislocation of the coinage, gave a vehicle and a method of organization to these complaints. At first the council disregarded this developing opposition, and then it recognized it with an entirely devastating frankness. Never, of course, had there been so provisional a government. It was an extravagant illegality. It was, indeed, hardly more than a club, a club of about a hundred persons. At the outset there were ninety-three, and these were increased afterwards by the issue of invitations which more than balanced its deaths to as many at one time as one hundred and nineteen. Always its constitution has been miscellaneous. At no time were these invitations issued with an admission that they recognized a right. The old institution or monarchy had come out unexpectedly well in the light of the new regime. Nine of the original members of the first government were crowned heads who had resigned their separate sovereignty and at no time afterwards did the number of its royal members sink below six. In their case there was perhaps a kind of attenuated claim to rule. But except for them and the still more infinitesimal pretensions of one or two ex-presidents of republics, no member of the council had even the shade of a right to his participation in its power. It was natural, therefore, that its opponents should find a common ground in a clamor for representative government and build high hopes upon a return to parliamentary institutions. The council decided to give them everything they wanted, but in a form that suited ill with their aspirations. It became at one stroke a representative body. It became, indeed, magnificently representative. It became so representative that the politicians were drowned in a deluge of votes. Every adult of either sex, from pole to pole, was given a vote. And the world was divided into ten constituencies, 
which voted on the same day by means of a simple modification of the world post membership of the government it was decided must be for life save in the exceptional case of a recall but the elections which were held quinquennially were arranged to add fifty members on each occasion the method of proportional representation with one transferable vote was adopted and the voter might also write upon his voting paper in a specially marked space the name of any of his representatives that he wished to recall a ruler was recallable by as many votes as the quota by which he had been elected and the original members by as many votes in any constituency as the returning quotas in the first election upon these conditions the council submitted itself very cheerfully to the suffrages of the world none of its members were recalled and its fifty new associates which included twenty-seven which it had seen fit to recommend were of an altogether too miscellaneous quality to disturb the broad trend of its policy its freedom from rules or formalities prevented any obstructive proceedings and when one of the two newly arrived home rule members for india sought for information how to bring in a bill they learned simply that bills were not brought in they asked for the speaker and were privileged to hear much ripe wisdom from the ex-king egbert who was now consciously among the seniors of the gathering thereafter they were baffled men but already by that time the work of the council was drawing to an end it was concerned not so much for the continuation of its construction as for the preservation of its accomplished work from the dramatic instincts of the politician the life of the race becomes indeed more and more independent of the formal government the council in its opening phase was heroic in spirit a dragon-slaying body it slashed out of existence a vast knotted tangle of obsolete ideas and clumsy and jealous proprietorships it secured by a noble system of institutional precautions freedom of inquiry freedom of criticism free communications a common basis of education and understanding and freedom from economic oppression with that its creative task was accomplished it became more and more an established security and less and less an active intervention there is nothing in our time to correspond with the continual petty-making and entangling of laws in an atmosphere of contention that is perhaps the most perplexing aspect of constitutional history in the nineteenth century in that age they seem to have been perpetually making laws when we should alter regulations the work of change which we delegate to these scientific committees of specific general direction which have the special knowledge needed and which are themselves dominated by the broad intellectual process of the community was in those days inextricably mixed up with legislation they fought over the details we should as soon think of fighting over the arrangement of the parts of a machine 
We know nowadays that such things go on best within laws, as life goes on between earth and sky. And so it is that government gathers now for a day or so in each year under the sunshine of Brizago when St. Bruno's lilies are in flower, and does little more than bless the work of its committees. And even these committees are less originative and more expressive of the general thought than they were at first. It becomes difficult to mark out the particular directive personalities of the world. Continually we are less personal. Every good thought contributes now, and every able brain falls within that informal and dispersed kingship which gathers together into one purpose the energies of the race. Section 10 It is doubtful if we shall ever see again a phase of human existence in which politics, that is to say a partisan interference with the ruling sanities of the world, will be the dominant interest among serious men. We seem to have entered upon an entirely new phase in history in which contention, as distinguished from rivalry, has almost abruptly ceased to be the usual occupation, and has become at most a subdued and hidden and discredited thing. Contentious professions cease to be an honorable employment for men. The peace between nations is also a peace between individuals. We live in a world that comes of age. Man the warrior, man the lawyer, and all the bickering aspects of life pass into obscurity. The grave dreamers, man the curious learner, and man the creative artist, come forward to replace these barbaric aspects of existence by a less ignoble adventure. There is no natural life of man. He is and always has been, a sheath of varied and even incompatible possibilities, a palimpsest of inherited dispositions. It was the habit of many writers in the early twentieth century to speak of competition and the narrow, private life of trade and saving and suspicious isolation, as though such things were in some exceptional way proper to the human constitution, and as though openness of mind and a preference for achievement over possession were abnormal and rather unsubstantial qualities. How wrong that was the history of the decades immediately following the establishment of the World Republic witnesses. Once the world was released from the hardening insecurities of a needless struggle for life that was collectively planless and individually absorbing, it became apparent that there was in the vast mass of people a long, smothered passion to make things. The world broke out into making, and at first mainly into aesthetic making. This phase of history, which has been not inaptly termed the efflorescence, is still, to a large extent, with us. The majority of our population consists of artists, and the bulk of activity in the world lies no longer with necessities but with their elaboration, decoration, and refinement. 
there has been an evident change in the quality of this making during recent years it becomes more purposeful than it was losing something of its first elegance and prettiness and gaining in intensity but that is a change rather of hue than of nature that comes with a deepening philosophy and a sounder education for the first joyous exercises of fancy we perceive now the deliberation of a more constructive imagination there is a natural order in these things and art comes before science as the satisfaction of more elemental needs must come before art and as play and pleasure come in a human life before the development of a settled purpose for thousands of years this gathering impulse to creative work must have struggled in man against the limitations imposed upon him by his social ineptitude it was a long smouldering fire that flamed out at last in all these things the evidence of a pathetic perpetually thwarted urgency to make something is one of the most touching aspects of the relics and records of our immediate ancestors there still exists in the death area about the london bombs a region of deserted small homes that furnish the most illuminating comment on the old state of affairs these homes are entirely horrible uniform square squat hideously proportioned uncomfortable dingy and in some respects quite filthy only people in complete despair of anything better could have lived in them but to each is attached a ridiculous little rectangle of land called the garden containing usually a prop for drying clothes and a loathsome box of offal the dustbin full of eggshells cinders and such like refuse now that one may go about this region in comparative security for the london radiations have dwindled to inconsiderable proportions it is possible to trace in nearly every one of these gardens some effort to make here it is a poor little plank summer-house here it is a fountain of bricks and oyster-shells here a rockery here a workshop and in the houses everywhere there are pitiful little decorations clumsy models feeble drawings these efforts are almost incredibly inept like the drawings of blindfolded men they are only one shade less harrowing to a sympathetic observer than the scratchings one finds upon the walls of the old prisons but there they are witnessing to the poor buried instincts that struggled up towards the light that god of joyous expression our poor fathers ignorantly sought our freedom has declared to us in the old days the common ambition of every simple soul was to possess a little property a patch of land a house uncontrolled by others an independence as the english used to put it and what made this desire for freedom and prosperity so strong was very evidently the dream of self-expression of doing something with it of playing with it of making a personal delightfulness a distinctiveness property was never more than a means to an end nor avarice more than a perversion 
men owned in order to do freely now that every one has his own apartments and his own privacy secure this disposition to own has found its release in a new direction men study and save and strive that they may leave behind them a series of panels in some public arcade a row of carven figures along a terrace a grove a pavilion or they give themselves to the penetration of some still opaque riddle in phenomena as once men gave themselves to the accumulation of riches the work that was once the whole substance of social existence for most men spend all their lives in earning a living is now no more than was the burden upon one of those old climbers who carried knapsacks of provisions on their backs in order that they might ascend mountains it matters little to the easy charities of our emancipated time that most people who have made their labor contribution produce neither new beauty nor new wisdom but are simply busy about those pleasant activities and enjoyments that reassure them that they are alive they help it may be by reception and reverberation and they hinder nothing section eleven now all this phase of gigantic change in the contours and appearances of human life which is going on about us a change as rapid and as wonderful as the swift ripening of adolescence to manhood after the barbaric boyish years is correlated with moral and mental changes at least as unprecedented it is not as if old things were going out of life and new things coming in it is rather that the altered circumstances of men are making an appeal to elements in his nature that have hitherto been suppressed and checking tendencies that have hitherto been overstimulated and overdeveloped he has not so much grown and altered his essential being as turned new aspects to the light such turnings round into a new attitude the world has seen on a less extensive scale before the highlanders of the seventeenth century for example were cruel and bloodthirsty robbers in the nineteenth their descendants were conspicuously trusty and honorable men there was not a people in western europe in the early twentieth century that seemed capable of hideous massacres and none that had not been guilty of them within the previous two centuries the free frank kindly gentle life of the prosperous classes in any european country before the years of the last wars was in a different world of thought and feeling from that of the dingy suspicious secretive and uncharitable existence of the respectable poor or the constant personal violence the squalor and naive passions of the lowest stratum yet there were no real differences of blood and inherent quality between these worlds their differences were all in circumstances suggestion and habits of mind and turning to more individual instances the constantly observed difference between one portion of a life and another consequent upon a religious conversion 
were standing examples of the versatile possibilities of human nature the catastrophe of the atomic bombs which shook men out of cities and businesses and economic relations shook them also out of their old established habits of thought and out of the lightly held beliefs and prejudices that came down to them from the past to borrow a word from the old-fashioned chemists men were made nascent they were released from old ties for good or evil they were ready for new associations the council carried them forward for good perhaps if his bombs had reached their destination king ferdinand charles might have carried them back to an endless chain of evils but his task would have been a harder one than the council's the moral shock of the atomic bombs had been a profound one and for a while the cunning side of the human animal was overpowered by its sincere realization of the vital necessity for reconstruction the litigious and trading spirits cowered together scared at their own consequences men thought twice before they sought mean advantages in the face of the unusual eagerness to realize new aspirations and when at last the weeds revived again and claims began to sprout they sprouted upon the stony soil of law courts reformed of laws that pointed to the future instead of the past and under the blazing sunshine of a transforming world a new literature a new interpretation of history were springing into existence a new teaching was already in the schools a new faith in the young the worthy man who forestalled the building of a research city for the english upon the sussex downs by buying up a series of estates was dispossessed and laughed out of court when he made his demands for some preposterous compensation the owner of the discredited dos patents makes his last appearance upon the scroll of history as the insolvent proprietor of a paper called the cry for justice in which he duns the world for a hundred million pounds that was the ingenuous das's idea of justice that he ought to be paid about five million pounds annually because he had annexed the salvage of one of holston's discoveries das came at last to believe quite firmly in his right and he died a victim of a conspiracy mania in a private hospital at nice both of these men would probably have ended their days enormously wealthy and of course ennobled in the england of the opening twentieth century and it is just this novelty of their fates that marks the quality of the new age the new government early discovered the need of a universal education to fit men to the great conceptions of its universal rule it made no wrangling attacks on the local racial and sectarian forms of religious profession that at that time divided the earth into a patchwork of hatreds and distrusts it left these organizations to make their peace with god in their own time 
but it proclaimed as if it were a mere secular truth that sacrifice was expected from all that respect had to be shown to all it revived schools or set them up afresh all around the world and everywhere these schools taught the history of war and the consequences and moral of the last war everywhere it was taught not as a sentiment but as a matter of fact that the salvation of the world from waste and contention was the common duty and occupation of all men and women these things which are now the elementary commonplaces of human intercourse seemed to the counsellors of brazago when first they dared to proclaim them marvellously daring discoveries not untouched by doubt that flushed the cheek and fired the eye the council placed all this educational reconstruction in the hands of a committee of men and women which did its work during the next few decades with remarkable breadth and effectiveness this educational committee was and is the correlative upon the mental and spiritual side of the redistribution committee and prominent upon it and indeed for a time quite dominating it was a russian named karenin who was singular in being a congenital cripple his body was bent so that he walked with difficulty suffered much pain as he grew older and had at last to undergo two operations the second killed him already malformation which was to be seen in every crowd during the middle ages so that the crippled beggar was as it were an essential feature of the human spectacle was becoming a strange thing in the world it had a curious effect upon karenin's colleagues their feelings towards him was mingled with pity and a sense of inhumanity that it needed usage rather than reason to overcome he had a strong face with little bright brown eyes rather deeply sunken and a large resolute thin-lipped mouth his skin was very yellow and wrinkled and his hair iron gray he was at all times an impatient and sometimes an angry man but this was forgiven him because of the hot wire of suffering that was manifestly thrust through his being at the end of his life his personal prestige was very great to him far more than to any contemporary is it due that self-abnegation self-identification with the world spirit was made the basis of universal education that general memorandum to the teachers which is the keynote of the modern educational system was probably entirely his work whosoever would save his soul shall lose it he wrote that is the device upon the seal of this document and the starting point of all we have to do it is a mistake to regard it as anything but a plain statement of fact it is the basis for your work you have to teach self-forgetfulness and everything else that you have to teach is contributory and subordinate to that end education is the release of man from self you have to widen the horizons of your children encourage and intensify their curiosity and their creative impulses and cultivate and enlarge their sympathies 
that is what you are for under your guidance and the suggestions you will bring to bear on them they have to shed the old atom of instinctive suspicions hostilities and passions and to find themselves again in the great being of the universe the little circles of their egotisms have to be opened out until they become arcs in the sweep of the racial purpose and this that you teach to others you must learn also sedulously yourselves philosophy discovery art every sort of skill every sort of service love these are the means of salvation from that narrow loneliness of desire that brooding preoccupation with self and egotistical relationships which is hell for the individual treason to the race and exile from god end of chapter four sections seven eight nine ten and eleven